0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: Monday of last week, we may not have been talking about this right now because mm. interest would have died down. Yeah. But their her parents dug in, told the lie on national TV, kept the lie going until this week, which seven days is a long yeah. time for police resources to be working on a case. And knowing everyone involved knows it's a lie, and they don't want to end it.
2: Eric Guster, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for us tonight. Ashley Banfield starts right now.
0: Hey, everybody. I'm Brian Enton in for Ashley tonight. Welcome to Banfield. For 12 straight nights, we have started this show in Massapequa Park, New York, outside the house of accused serial killer Rex Hurman. Every single night, you've seen it, they have had that house lit up. They have been pulling stuff out every single night. You remember the creepy doll, the picture of the woman, the hundreds of guns that we watched uh, watched get pulled out. They, They were digging in the backyard, As recently as just yesterday, it has literally been nonstop at all hours of the day. And guess what? Tonight, they say they are officially done. They have packed up and police have left. The road is now back open and that very, very detailed search of the house is over. And by the way, they say the road is open, but they're keeping journalists away now. They've technically reopened the road, but they say reporters stay back. They've even got police cameras out there now that they've put up to make sure that people stay away. Kind of reminds me of when I was outside Brian Laundrie's house. We ended up having to camp out on the lawn because the police didn't want us out on the street. So going to be interesting to see the way reporters navigate that one. But now that the search may be over, um, you better believe that all the stuff they took is now being tested. And let's just remember uh, that we don't know everything they took. We just know the stuff our cameras were able to zoom in on and actually see. And we had cameras out there pretty much 24-7. We saw plenty of stuff. Uh, But there was also all that stuff they took out in bags and boxes that we could not lay our eyes on. Uh, So now we're going to have to start the next chapter of this investigation. And that is what they uh, what we're going to dig into tonight. What actually happens next? Where do they go from here? um, And exactly what are they processing now that they're done at the house? We're going to dig into it. Also, uh, what is so interesting about this Long Island serial killer investigation is that it has put all sorts of other killings back in the public eye unexplained, unsolved killings like Atlantic City, New Jersey and the Eastbound Strangler. You might remember from last night, we talked about those murders uh, last night uh, in Atlantic City. All of those women killed just 150 miles or so from Gilgo Beach where Rex Hurriman was. But guess what? We've learned there is another man police questioned in Atlantic City. That is new tonight. A man who says he is innocent and he may even be hoping that a Rex Hurriman connection could end up clearing his name. It is fascinating. We have that man's lawyer joining us live uh, in just a couple of minutes. Also tonight, if you told me two months ago when we broke the story of the UFO whistleblower that we would now be on the eve of a congressional hearing on UFOs, congressional hearings, honestly, I don't think I would have believed it. This has all happened so, so fast, but here we are. It is happening. We are going to learn so much more information about what the government could be trying to cover up. That hearing starts uh, tomorrow morning. It's happening, folks. And tonight we've got exclusive information, including a new UFO sighting. It's not just anyone who saw this craft and this latest sighting. It is yet... Another military pilot, and he says his radar picked up multiple craft, even shut down some of his equipment. Uh, The reporter who is breaking the news of the new sighting will be right here on this show. That again is coming up uh, in just a couple of minutes. And that is where we start tonight. We are now 12 hours away from historic congressional hearings where we may start to get the answer humankind has been asking ever since we first saw stars in the sky Are we alone in this universe? And tonight, Again, exclusive information on what we can expect in the hearings, perhaps even some major surprises. And I'm going to get to the possibility of those surprises uh, in just a minute. This right here, I've been going over it for the last couple of days. This packet is what members of Congress were given to get ready for the hearings. It's literally hundreds of pages. Takes a long time uh, to go through. We were able to get our hands on the packet. Spent all night going through it, very, very detailed. Some of it is mind-blowing. It's a timeline of the last 75 years. All of the sightings and reports of UFOs from government officials and also civilian witnesses. It starts with the granddaddy of all UFO sightings. We've all heard of it. 1947, Roswell, New Mexico. The first claims of flying saucer debris reported by an Air Force Colonel after something crashed near Roswell. 1973, A U.S. Senator, Barry Goldwater, says he was not allowed to see a secret room at an Air Force base in Ohio where a UFO was rumored to be stored. Goldwater says a four-star general, quote, cussed him out when he even asked about it. And in 1989, a man who used to work at a secret Air Force base in New Mexico tells reporters about hidden aircraft hangars and that nine flying saucers are stored there. It was the general public's introduction to Area 51 at that time. And there is a lot uh, in those documents. None of that includes the three witnesses that we know will testify at tomorrow's hearings. And I emphasize that we know will testify. I'm gonna explain why I'm emphasizing that in a second. That's another very interesting component to all of this we're gonna talk about with our guest. Uh, We know tomorrow under oath, David Fravor, a retired Navy fighter squadron commander who had a shocking encounter with something in the skies. That flew faster and unlike anything in the military uh, inventory ever before. Also, David Grush, the military and intelligence whistleblower, whose bombshell interview right here on News Nation re energized this new search for answers. And Ryan Graves, uh, a former US Navy fighter pilot who reported his strange object sightings to his superiors and to Congress. And what about NASA? Well, the federal government's official space agency. Uh, They will actually not have a very big role in these space-involved hearings. Nothing at all. No NASA officials were invited to take part. They've released a new statement today. This is what NASA officials had to say. NASA was not requested to participate in the United States House Committee's hearing on UAP. The work of NASA's independent UAP study team is due to be completed in the coming weeks. The report will contain a series of recommendations for NASA to better evaluate and categorize the nature of UAPs. So that was their statement. But again, very interesting that they're not going to be a part of these big hearings that start tomorrow morning. I want to bring in Michael Schellenberger, an investigative journalist who has been digging into past UFO whistleblowers, uh, who have been silenced by the government. We're going to get into that with you in a second. Michael, I've got so much to cover with you. You've got so many new uh, exclusive details on all of this. I want to start, though, with this new account from a pilot, from a military pilot F-18, saw something. Uh, Tell us what you know.
1: Yeah, well, so what we're hearing is that on February 21st of this year, an Air Force pilot uh, had their uh, radar and electronics malfunction at the very moment that they encountered a very large UAP um, that the person that uh, gave us this information said, was not a UAP that you would want to encounter, meaning that it was frightening to the pilot. The radar also showed that there were multiple UAPs in the vicinity. This is an extraordinary account. As far as I know, uh, we're the only people that are reporting on this incident. I think it's uh, uh, fair to say that it's not the only incident like this. Uh, Obviously, tomorrow we're going to hear from uh, David Fravor, who reports on the famous Tic Tac incident. But I think it gives you a sense of just how many incidents there have been that have not been reported and that have been kept secret by the U.S. military. And I think it's time for the secrecy to come to an end. I think that's one of the big takeaways here is that whether or not you think UAPs represent some sort of um, alien or non-human intelligence or whether it's just some more earthly explanation, uh, I think the American people deserve some answers. Um, this uh, We live in a democracy. Civilians control our military, not the other way around. And I think it's time to get some answers um, and put an end to this, I think, overly secretive business around UAPs that, as you mentioned, has been going on uh, for a, uh, at least seventy-five years.
0: Yeah, and I know you have a new article coming out tomorrow. The details of the past seventy-five years, the threats. We're going to get to that. Um, it's interesting too. Your your new reporting about this F-18 pilot, yet another pilot within the military uh, who who saw something like this. Even the equipment shutting down It's just fascinating. I want to ask you about the hearings tomorrow, though, because you're well-sourced on that too. Congressman Burchett initially told me that they were expecting six witnesses. I think he said half a dozen. Uh, We know that there are three witnesses tomorrow. Is there a possibility that we could actually end up seeing more?
1: Yes. uh, um, Our sources say that there could be an additional three witnesses. I do hasten to add, though, this is an area um, where there's been so much speculation. And it's a little frustrating as a reporter that's interested in the facts. I always stress that I, I try to report... On what I've been told, Um, these things are not easy to verify. So we could end up with just three witnesses tomorrow, or we could end up with as many as six. You may also know there was just recently, a couple hours ago, uh, Congressman Burchett announced that he would not be chairing the hearing uh, with Congressperson Luna, that it would instead be chaired by Congressperson Garcia. Now, Garcia had said five days ago that he would be chairing the hearing. But it appears that that even who would be in charge of the hearing uh, had not been decided until just a, a few hours ago. So I think it's a very dynamic situation. I think it's I think the hearing tomorrow is going to be the biggest story of the day tomorrow, unless something unforeseen happens. The intensity of the interest in this issue, I've never seen it before. Like many Americans, I have followed this issue since I was a boy for many decades it's always been in the shadows, but it's now getting a mainstream hearing. I think it's about time. And I do think many people like myself are going to be watching the hearings live to see whether there are new people coming forward and and whether we're able to get any new information or whether we're just going to be told the same things that we've been told for several years now.
0: Let me ask you this, Michael. I mean, the fact that there could possibly be three more witnesses that didn't want to be named is not that surprising when you think about um, the yeah. fact that, uh, that there's a fear to come forward. If the names come out early, they could, you know, be retaliated against, they could be threatened by higher ups not to speak. I mean, this has happened before you, you let me get a look at your article that you're publishing tomorrow, this very detailed look back at the last 75 years and all of these instances where people have been threatened, even threatened, threatened with death, you report.
1: Well, that's right. It's very shocking. And I should say that, you know, there's, there's some people that don't uh think this is an important issue there's people that think that this is either a distraction at best or some kind of disinformation campaign at worst what i would point out though is that we have 75 years now of many uap witnesses and whistleblowers saying they have uh reporting that they had been threatened with death by u.s military or other u.s government officials First of all, I think it's worth pointing out. um, It's illegal to threaten somebody with death. It's a a, a felony offense. Um, Therefore, accusing somebody of threatening you um, is a serious accusation. And the people that are making these allegations are very serious people. Uh, These are uh, credible people. They're people not just in the United States, but around the world. It's also people it's, uh, you know, uh, former Marines, uh, former soldiers. Uh, people in government, people outside of government. There's a set of very suspicious patterns of the, the descriptions that they give, including being told, for example, that you didn't see what you think you saw. That's something that is often repeated, um, but very scary threats uh, being made. And of course, it's very difficult to verify this. I think what's com- what's compelling about it, though, is that it's been going on for so long, and so. I think one thing again, if um, whether or not you think UAPs represent some sort of non-human or extraterrestrial intelligence, or whether you think it's some sort of particular uh, psychogenic or or a social contagion that uh, affects uh, some people in particular ways, either way, it's absolutely inappropriate for U.S. government officials to be issuing death threats. Um, that's an abuse of power, and yeah. Uh, Uh, We have been documenting abuses of power by various organizations in the United States over the last several years, including the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI. And I think whether or not you think there's anything to the UAP phenomenon, the fact that you have so many people reporting this particular form of threat, I think is very disturbing. And at a minimum, we should be um, putting an end to that, shining a light on it, exposing it. Um, but it also may more maximally explain why it's been so difficult to get good evidence and good information out about the phenomenon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And even if you don't believe in UFOs, I mean, so many of us are skeptical. Whatever they're trying to hide, I mean, you bring up such a good point. Should the government be threatening people with death? And and I know you've been studying this, and you're and, and you know you're going to break all of this tomorrow in more detail. But I mean, this is this is breaking news. This is the night a- ahead of the hearing. The fact that that you've got evidence that that people have been threatened in the past to not come forward. And again, these are government officials. Um, It's no wonder that people are so scared to come forward and testify.
1: Well, yeah, not only that, but these testimonies, the the claims about the death threats, they keep happening. So obviously David Grush, the whistleblower that News Nation was the first to bring to public attention. He talked about um, being threatened and fearing retaliation. Another uh, whistleblower named Michael Herrera uh, said that he was uh, threatened with death by uh, American soldiers that were not wearing identifiable uniforms in Indonesia in 2009. Uh, just gave a long interview on the subject. He came across as extremely credible, but it goes all the way back to 1947. So the most famous uh, alleged UAP crash uh, occurred in Roswell, New Mexico, yep. allegedly. And um, there's at least three people that said that there were death threats made by U.S. military officers, including two uh, with two people who said that, a, uh, that described the same person making the threats, a redheaded officer. Uh, we actually had three cases. We ended up only mentioning two of them in our story. We just had so much material. Mm. Incredibly um, – It's difficult to explain uh, these situations um, that, I mean, that people would be making this up. Interestingly enough, those Roswell interviews are actually uh, available online and we'll have links to them in the story. They were actually conducted by U.S. government investigators as part of the National Archives. It's wild. Watch them yourself.
0: Yeah, it's wild. Uh, We look forward to your reporting tomorrow, Michael. Also, a lot of people have been asking me about this document that I actually got from you Um, And I know you also plan to publish that uh, in some capacity because Twitter was going crazy earlier when I when I held it up. So that'll get out there, too. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate
1: it. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, now I want to bring in uh, Nick Pope. He studied UFOs for the British Ministry of Defense and is one of the world's leading experts on UFO conspiracy theories. Also, UFO researcher, historian, and author, Richard Dolan, uh, joins us live tonight. Um, Nick, I want to start with you. What do you make of these threats? I mean, the night before the hearings, to be talking about, you know, people in the government being threatened not to talk is pretty disturbing.
2: It is. These are extremely serious accusations, and Congress must get to the bottom Of things. I I mean, this is a historic hearing. There's no doubt about that. We've heard, of course, previously from uh, government witnesses, both at a previous congressional hearing and at the NASA meeting. Now we get to hear from the witnesses, uh, two pilots and, of course, David Grush. And there is clearly a disconnect between the official line from the US government And what these whistleblowers are saying, particularly David Grush, who sat at the heart of the intelligence community. And what I hope will happen is he will help Congress understand why this is this disconnect exists and help them find these programs. I mean, there's no gray area here. He's talked about recovered craft and non-human intelligences. Congress needs to be given the details so that we can verify this. But if death threats are in the mix, too... uh, Few things are more serious than that.
0: Yeah, it's very disturbing. Richard, I want to bring you in. Um, What do you make of the fact that, you know, all three of these witnesses have already spoken publicly, David Grush, perhaps the most significant here on News Nation. but I am told um, that there is new information that Grush will talk about tomorrow. He's going to go into more detail. I don't know if he'll name names. What are you expecting to come out of the hearings, Richard?
3: Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on. It's very interesting indeed. Grush is absolutely a very important whistleblower and he's he's it is true to call him a whistleblower by the way that's a term that's sometimes overused but he genuinely is and he the problem with uh some people have complained they said well you know he's not really telling us everything that he knows the the, the situation is that he has very very high classifications and security clearances and he can't tell everything that he knows and i have wondered is there any wiggle room that he has uh, things that maybe he can, uh, is he can he leave a tidbit? Can he leave a breadcrumb? Uh, I think he might be in a tight spot in yeah. terms of what he is able to reveal, but I think he's the big wild card for tomorrow. Uh, we all know what David Fravor has had to say, he's very important. We know what Ryan Graves has had to say. They're both excellent pilots, they're unimpeachable witnesses, but Grush is someone who we know has had very, very sensitive positions and does seem to know a lot. And I I look at him as the wild card. As far as what he could say,
0: we're all going to just have to wait and see what that will be. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you because obviously the the Navy commander and the pilot, we've we've heard their accounts of what they've seen. That's not going to change. The thing with Grush is that he knows a lot more than he's allowed to say. And it's possible that when he sits down in that chair tomorrow – um, that that he could actually open up in a way that we haven't seen yet. Uh, Nick Pope. May I and add one Rich- thing. Sure. Yeah. Go for it, Richard. I, I think
3: it's really significant that we have Fravor and uh, Ryan Graves uh, giving their testimony, even though their their information has been public. This we we have not had a situation of congressional hearings in which two exceptionally qualified military witnesses have been able to speak in front of our elected representatives and say exactly what. They experience in terms of the UFO, UAP phenomenon. And I think that's important. It's one thing to have it in the public domain, which it's already been, but it's another thing to bring it before Congress as qualified witnesses, which they certainly are. And that will be a significant moment.
0: Nick and Richard, don't go anywhere. I have more questions for you. I want you to stick around with me on the show uh, because I want to ask you about the skeptics. There's a lot of people watching tonight saying, until I see hard evidence... I don't care about stories. I don't care about testimony. I want to see the hard evidence. We'll talk about that coming up next. Okay, we are 11 and a half hours away now from these congressional UFO hearings, really the first time we've ever seen anything like this in history. I want to bring back in Nick Pope. He studied UFOs for the British Ministry of Defense and is one of the world's leading experts on UFO conspiracy theories, also UFO researcher, historian, and author uh, Richard Dolan. Thank you for joining us again. Nick, let let me start with you because we had some interesting breaking news tonight from, from Michael Schellenberger, his reporting about the possibility of additional witnesses, people who didn't want to be on the initial list uh, feared some kind of retribution. What do you think the chances are of that, Nick?
2: I I think it's possible, and I hope that happens. And if it's happened that the names have been withheld because they are going to unpack some bombshell Tomorrow, and they are genuinely worried that somebody might try and nip that in the bud with with threats or something. Look, the best way to to get that out there is is just to say it on the floor um, in Congress. Uh, having said that, of course, I am not urging anyone to break the law. People are uh, bound by their security oaths, and and things are very often classified for a good reason. But there really can't be anything in and of itself classified about the fact that we've been not alone in the universe. If that's what we're dealing with here, come out and say that. By all means, keep other things, like the technology, if that can be weaponized or or might be acquired by China or Russia, by all means, keep that secret. But If the story really is, there are There's an extraterrestrial presence or non-human intelligence, whatever the terminology is. Let's let's hear about that. And let's hope that David Grush and maybe the mystery witnesses help Congress by by telling them where to look. Look, what in agency is this embedded in? What's the name of the project? Who's the director? All this must be known information.
0: Look, I've talked to Grush. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he gives a lot more information. I mean, his whole purpose, uh, he says, is. He wants the American people to know what's going on. I mean, he's not going to violate his security clearances, but I could see him pushing it right to the line. Uh, Richard, l- let me ask you something. A lot of my friends ask this question. They say, wait a minute. How am I supposed to believe when it's, it's just testimony? It's just words. It's just people's accounts of what they've heard. There are so many people who want to see evidence. They want to actually see hard evidence uh, to actually convince them. How do you respond to those people?
3: Yeah, it's a reasonable question. I've uh, been thinking about that one for many years. Indeed, I got into the UFO subject about thirty years ago, looking for evidence myself. And what I discovered is that we actually have a overwhelming abundance of such evidence through the release of government documents through Freedom of Information. Uh, these documents do not prove that UFOs are extraterrestrial. There's no document. That's a memo to the president saying, boss, I think we're being invaded by aliens. But what we do have are many hundreds, uh, many hundreds of excellent documents that are a hair's breadth b- below that and which will describe military encounters with objects that are described as saucer shaped described as having exceptional capability and maneuverability, evasive, mm. uh, and the like, going back to the 1940s. Uh, and we also know through those documents that high-level generals, intelligence officials, and the like have been deeply concerned about this. We have, uh, you know, when you talk about we need data and so forth, we actually have the data through these documents. We know that back in the late 1940s, for example, and the early 1950s, the U.S. Air Force was using instruments called theodolites to measure uh, objects over New Mexico that were hanging out over Los Alamos National Labs back at that time, a very serious matter. They were tracking these objects moving at multiple thousands of miles per hour at altitudes of about 100,000 feet. That is well beyond the altitude record at the time for U.S. military pilots. And we have much more information than this. Uh, so the story is it's just a long litany of airspace violations and not simply, by the way, in the United States. I should point out, we know that the Soviets, the Russians, have had their own history of this as well, as have all other NATO countries, as yeah. have all other nations with military capabilities. Yeah,
0: I think uh, it's just I think it's just being phenomenal. willing and open to, to look at some of this evidence. I mean, it's it's been so easy to 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 turn a blind eye to it for so long. It's uncomfortable sometimes to talk about um, the unexplained. But it's going to be out there tomorrow, uh, like, like we haven't seen before. Uh, Nick Pope, Richard Dolan, thank you both so much for coming on tonight on the eve of these historic hearings. We really appreciate it. Thank A pleasure. You. OK, moving on tonight um, and switching gears. Uh, it has been 12 days since the arrest of suspected Long Island serial killer Rex Hurriman near his office in Manhattan. We've covered it every night. 12 days since investigators began their painstaking search for any evidence at his home in Massapequa Park. Well, today, the search has finally come to an end. Suffolk County D.A. Ray Tierney uh, gave no specifics of what was found, but said, quote, the list of items is huge. He described the items. Uh, the list is huge. They've got a lot of stuff. When asked whether authorities could determine if any victims had been killed in the home, he said it was too early to tell. Listen to what he said at the presser earlier.
5: I believe at this time that we can say uh, one way or the other. Either um, evidence evidence does not point either one way or the other. Uh, I would I would say that we we have obtained a massive amount of of. Uh, material, which all of which has to be cataloged and and, uh, analyzed, and it's going to take uh, quite some time.
0: Tarnity described the house as cluttered, said no large items were recovered, and that the search was for hair fibers and other trace evidence. We know from photos that some particularly creepy items were removed. There was that life-size doll uh, and a a glass case that you see there, a portrait of a young woman with bruises on her face, and nearly 300 guns. DA Tierney made a point to note that none of those guns were found in the home, uh, have been returned yet. Yesterday we saw an excavator at Hureman's home and today we learned ground piercing technology was also used in the search but quote "nothing of note was actually taken from the suspect's yard. The media now have to take their word for, for have to take our we have to basically just take their word for it as journalists as, uh, we're being told now to move off the block and police cameras were installed in front of the house to observe any activity. They're keeping an eye on all of it. Uh, we're going to talk about all of this. Uh, the new developments, where the investigation goes from here, how this could possibly be connected to other cases, and why this may actually uh, let one man off the hook who's been accused in the past of another case. We got it after the break. Will Rex Hurman be linked to more murders? That question is on the minds of people in several states, including one right next door. Investigators have noted several eerie similarities Between the four victims connected to Heerman in Gilgo Beach, New York, and four women found murdered in Atlantic City, New Jersey. The four Atlantic City victims, Molly Diltz, Kim Raffo, Barbara Breeder, and Tracy Roberts, you see there, were all sex workers like the victims in the Gilgo Beach case. They were all strangled. They were all found dumped close together. Unlike the Gilgo Beach case, however, no arrests have been made in Atlantic City. The eastbound strangler, that's what they're calling the killer in New Jersey because all four victims were found facing east, remains at large. Uh, The police have zeroed in on a few people over the years, most notably Terry Olson. The victims were uh, found in a drainage ditch next to the motel where Olson worked as a handyman. He was questioned by police, even gave a DNA sample, Even though he was never named as a suspect, some people, particularly true crime fans on social media, continue to suspect that he had something to do with the murders. So will the arrest of Rex Heurman finally put an end to the speculation about the Eastbound killer's identity and will it clear Terry Olson's name once and for all? Uh, we are pleased tonight to be joined by James Leonard, the attorney representing Terry Olson. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, James. I got to ask you, um, Terry gave up his DNA. There was all sorts of testing that went on. I mean, were they ever able to just say flat out he didn't, his DNA didn't didn't match?
5: Brian, we gave Mr. Olson's DNA to the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office more than 16 years ago. Um, and during the last 16 years, they have not cleared Mr. Olson's name. Uh, he remains a person of interest. Uh, but I, I think it's fair to say that if that DNA had matched uh, any of the victims in this quadruple homicide here in Atlantic City, Mr. Olson would not be free after 16 years. So I think your viewers can draw their own conclusions regarding Uh, the DNA test.
0: So he was the handyman at the Golden Key Motel. Obviously, there are other employees there, other people in the area. Do you know, has anyone else been questioned? Does does Terry have any idea who who it may have been since he knew that area so well?
5: Over the years, Brian, we've heard from various individuals that have put forward uh, numerous conspiracy theories. Um, I had an individual who's now deceased Uh, confessed to me that confession was recorded, submitted to the Atlanta County prosecutor's office. I think they deemed uh, that that was not credible. Um, We have provided them with various leads that we have received over the years. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see uh, if Mr. Hewerman's name uh, finds its way into the Atlanta County investigation.
0: Did Terry know the victims at all?
5: He indicated that he may have seen one of the women uh, in or around the Golden Key Motel back at that time. He was there for a very brief period of time, but personally, he did not know any of the victims.
0: What do you make of this Rex Huram impossible connection? I mean, you know the case inside out because you've been representing Terry Olson. Uh, Do you think it it stacks up? Do you think there could be a real connection here?
5: I, I think there could be a connection. I mean, the proximity between Long Island and Atlantic City is approximately 90 minutes. Um, These four women in Atlantic County, uh, in Atlantic City, were murdered uh, over the span of about three weeks in 2006. Um, We know what happens in Long Island uh, in 2010. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if there was a connection. I do know that there were viable DNA samples uh, on the clothes and body of at least two of the women in Atlantic City. Two of them, unfortunately, were very uh, badly decomposed, their body submersed in water and and subjected to the elements. Uh, So if there's a DNA match, obviously we're going to get somewhere. um, In the event that it is not Rex Hewerman or his DNA does not come back, I don't know that we're any closer to solving uh, this mystery, which is uh, approaching its 17th year.
0: Yeah, it's quite a mystery. And, and, you know, look, I'm glad that the Hearman case is bringing attention to some of these other mysteries. Perhaps it'll revitalize the investigations a little bit. Uh, I was looking into your client, uh, Terry Olson. He was charged with secretly videotaping a 15-year-old girl around the same time uh, of the murders, from what I understand. Do you think that's the sole reason that they started investigating him and trying to connect him as the killer?
5: I I think the reason that he fell uh, under investigation was his proximity uh, to the Golden Key Motel. uh, And and then it kind of went, it spiraled from there. Um, He volunteered a polygraph test. uh, He volunteered his DNA, which we gave uh, to the Atlanta County Prosecutor's Office back in June of 2007. He spoke with investigators uh, in excess of six hours without an attorney. These are not typically things that someone who is guilty does. Uh, I have no doubt as we sit here today, as I did back in 2007, when we were in and out of court with Mr. Olson, uh, that Terry Olson had absolutely nothing to do with these murders.
0: So he just lives as a person of interest? I mean, that's gotta be an awful way to live.
5: Uh, Well, you know, that that cloud looms over his head, um, but unfortunately, uh, the Atlanta County Prosecutor's Office uh, is not in the business of clearing anyone because they, their official, uh, official company line is that he was never formally a suspect.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, he was
5: simply a person of interest. So well, we'll follow Mr. It. Olson has moved on with his life.
0: Yeah, we'll follow it. Very, very interesting. Uh, James Leonard, thank you for coming on tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. Okay, we have to take a very quick break. Don't go anywhere, because in just a moment, I'll speak to someone who knows more about the Eastbound Strangler case than pretty much anyone else. He visited the Golden Key Motel we were just talking about and the ditch where the four bodies were found with Terry Olson, with Terry Olson, by the way, the guy we were just talking about. Does he actually believe Terry is innocent? Does he think he's connected? What does he think about Rex Hurriman? We're going to ask him live coming up next. Could Rex Hurriman's arrest lead to other murders being solved? There are the seven other bodies found in Gilgo Beach, but there are also several unsolved cases in other states that are now getting a second look because of the similarities with the Heurman case. In Atlantic City, for example, we've been talking about it. Four sex workers were strangled and dumped in 2006. The New Jersey State Police say they are now looking into any possible connections to Heurman. If any are found, that would obviously be a very, very big deal. Only a few names have come up uh, during the investigation, most notably Terry Olson, the man we just talked about with his lawyer, a handyman who lived and worked at the motel where the four bodies were found. He was questioned by police, voluntarily even gave a sample of his DNA. In 2017, he returned to the Golden Key Motel as part of an eight part docuseries called The Killing Season. Take a look at this.
2: Wow.
4: Yep. She was found literally right here. I mean, have you ever walked down here before? No. You've never been back Never. Yet? While Terry has never been charged with the murders, many still point the finger at him. Yet Terry continues to maintain his innocence.
2: You even gave them DNA?
4: I volunteered DNA. And what was the result of that DNA test? I still haven't gotten the results. They haven't given you the results? Huh. Why would they not? I couldn't tell you. Same reason they didn't give me my stuff back. My life's in shambles because of all this. It didn't have anything to do with whoever killed these poor women. It didn't have anything to do with the women. It had to do with Atlantic City. So, how bad did it get?
0: They accused me of killing people. How much worse can it get? so interesting seeing that coming out of that lawyer interview we just did. I'm joined by Josh Zeman, an investigative reporter and very popular documentary filmmaker. He's the executive producer and director of The Killing Season, currently available on Hulu. Thanks for being with us, Josh. Amazing work right there. I'm curious what you think, um, since you were out there with him. We just heard from the lawyer. Uh, I mean, do, do you think Terry could possibly be responsible
4: no, not at all uh you know he's just, he's volunteered his DNA he's given so much information um, as uh Mr. Leonard said, you know this was sixteen years ago, uh and he's been so forthright. I actually feel horrible uh for Ter- Terry Leonard because you know he lives in this purgatory where all people always you know will believe that he may have done it because the Atlantic county prosecutor's office refuses to say that he's not a suspect. Um, And, you know, this is just another example,
0: unfortunately, of, um, you know, missing, uh, missing the ball in this case. Yeah, you got to feel for the guy. I mean, just living as a person of interest, that just sounds so miserable. What do you make of the possibility of a Rex Heurman connection? I mean, you know the case very, very well. Do you see the similarities? Do you think it could be a possibility? I mean, on its face, there is a lot of Similarities. We're talking
4: about sex workers in both cases, Gilgo Beach. And uh, in the Eastbound Strangler case, uh, we're talking about uh, four women. And that's a big detail that both, pe- both sides have kind of glommed onto, um, all found uh, kind of together in some respects and all found close to water. Um, and, you know, Long Island is not that far away from Atlantic City. At the same time, you know, it's really quite different. Uh, Rex stalked his victims. He uh, got them from numerous different places. I think what we now know from uh, the Eastbound Strangler case, they all kind of came from the Golden Key Motel. So a lot of similarities, but enough differences that mm, I'm I'm not sure. Um, one thing we do know is that very recently, or at least, you know, un You know, not officially the police have said, no, these two cases aren't connected. Mm,
0: Interesting. I mean, I was thinking about this today. It took 13 years for them to arrest someone in the Gilgal Beach case. So many people gave up hope. So many of the victims' families thought that it would never be solved. The police weren't doing anything. And then they have this task force that comes together at the last second and— Figures this whole thing out. Do you think that this could bring hope in the Atlantic City case? I mean, do you think it could actually be solved at some point?
4: You know, that's a great question. I, when Rex Human was arrested, I was shocked. I never thought uh, the amount of time that I looked into this case, the kind of way that um, it was mishandled in the beginning. I thought. Basically, the case was so tainted that it would never be solved. And when it did, I, w- I was shocked. I was also extremely happy, especially for the victims' families. You know, they deserve justice. These women, while sex workers, that doesn't really mean anything. Everybody deserves justice. Um, it does give me hope for the Eastbound Strangler case. One thing that was unique to Long Island, there was a lot of pressure, whether it was our documentary, whether it was a number of podcasts, whether it was uh, the narrative film Lost Girls that was out on Netflix. You know, every couple of years, there would be some sort of push for this case to get solved. And I'm not sure that really has been happening in the Eastbound Strangler case.
0: Yeah, I guess we can just hope um, because... Uh, again, people lost hope uh, in uh, in Long Island, and now we see the way that turned out. Hopefully the same thing can happen in Atlantic City. Josh, it's such a pleasure to have you. The killing season is so, so good and so well done. Uh, I you. highly recommend everybody check it out. Hopefully we can have you on again soon, Josh. Uh, thanks for coming on tonight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Okay, still to come, Brian Koberger responds to his alibi deadline, at least sort of. A court filing came in just under the wire that, like everything else in this case— It's raising more questions than answers. I'll spell it out for you when we come back. All right, so Brian Koberger managed to meet his deadline for telling the state of Idaho whether he plans to assert an alibi defense without actually saying what that alibi might be, or whether or not he actually has one, or whether he plans to claim one. Nothing surprises me with this with this case anymore. It gets so confusing. His brand new filing states, I'm going to read it to you, evidence corroborating Mr. Koberger being at a le- location other than the King Road address will be disclosed per- pursuant to discovery and evidentiary rules as well as statutory requirements. And there's even more. It says, it is anticipated this evidence may be offered by way of cross-examination of witnesses produced by the state as well as calling expert witnesses. The translation for all that legal talk is uh, that's for us to know and for you to find out. Essentially, they're saying, look, we're not going to tell you what the alibi is at this point, whether or not for sure there is an alibi. But if there is an alibi, it's going to come out in witness testimony and you'll have to wait to the trial. And by the way, the trial is due to start October 2nd. That is just 69 days from now. If he's found guilty of murdering those four University of Idaho students, he could be facing the death penalty. A lot of people thought by now they would have filed something to push the trial back. Nope, At this point still set for October. Okay, that is it for Van- Banfield uh, on this Tuesday night. Thank you so much for watching. Tune in UFO hearings tomorrow morning right here on News Nation. I'll be hosting 10 a.m. You can watch them in their entirety. We won't interrupt them. We've got great guests planned. We'll see you tomorrow. Cuomo's next.